Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to the least professionally recorded episode of Power Hour ever. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Now, the bulk of this show will sound pretty good and will be awesome, Uh, but the beginning of this and the end of this, you'll get some insight into our recording process, I guess, because these aspects are often recorded at different times. Uh, I am recording outside in the cold in the Midwest. Now, one benefit of this is it makes me very appreciative of those of you listening who work in the energy industry who make it just really nice to walk inside a door and have the temperature change dramatically for the better thanks to human ingenuity. This was not something that was readily available for most of our ancestors, so I am very glad to be a modern human. Anyway, let's get to the point. Let's get to the topic because I am starting to get very cold given that I always seem to bring California clothes to whatever locale I am working at. Today we are going to talk about oil prices. You've heard a lot about them in the news. They are lower than they've been in a long time. The big question is why? And the second big question is what can we expect for the future? So if you've listened to the show in the past, you know that for these kinds of questions, I turn to one person above all, and that is Michael Lynch of Energy Seer, Energy, S-E-E-R.com. He is the man. We'll talk about him during the show, but I think he thinks about this stuff incredibly logically, and he has predicted today's situation in a way that few have, and he got demonized for it. So he deserves lots of credit. And we are definitely very lucky to have him on the show. So with that, we'll talk to Michael Lynch on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We are joined once again by Michael Lynch, president of Strategic Energy and Economic Research. Mike, welcome back to Power Hour. Thank you very much, Alex. All right, well, let's start off with a little history lesson. In January of 2011, a little podcast called Power Hour began. In February of 2011, it was was a monthly podcast at the time, as our second guest, we got someone named Michael Lynch, and it was recorded on February 28, 2011. Now, who can think off the top of their head what the oil price was on February 28, 2011? Well, I couldn't, so I looked it up, and it appears to be $96.97 a barrel. Now, on that show, I forget the exact price that he talked about, but Mike definitely talked about, I remember one at least end of it, or one part of the spectrum was $50 a barrel, which seemed insane to people, particularly because in 2008, it had been very, very high. And, and Mike was, in fact, I believe, called an idiot, at least, for insane by you know various <laughs> prominent people. 
And I have to admit that that back then, because my own, I had only really started studying this issue full time in 2007. I, you know, my own frame of reference was with these higher oil prices, and emotionally, it was hard for me to believe that he could be right. Although logically, I, I'll give myself credit for thinking that he was a very clear thinker about these issues, and, and my background is philosophy, so I always judge people by method, and his method was a lot better than the peak oil scaremongers who were just trashing him all over the place, as ignorant about how we're you know, running out of drops of oil in the world. And yet today, as we record this on Friday, January 15th, Mike, what's the price of oil? Uh, the price of oil is below thirty dollars right now, about twenty nine fifty. Yes, so I know uh, we have many listeners who work in the oil and gas industry, so that number uh, is, is pretty devastating to them. Uh, nevertheless, you know what we always want is we want well, we I'll use myself. You know, we want the price that's best for people, which to me means the price that's set uh, on a free market, which you know, factors in. Uh, all of the different uh, facts that are, are relevant to allocating oil to different people and making decisions about alternatives. So let's start with, I know we've talked about this before, but what's happened in the past couple of years? How has the price of oil gone down so much? Well, the, the biggest factor by far is the shale revolution in the U.S. where uh, you had about two and a half million barrels a day of new supply added in a couple of years, which is uh, the sort of uh, amounts you typically see only in the Middle East. Um, and people really, you know, almost up to the point where the, the price began collapsing, people uh, didn't believe shale oil would work out or, or not in, in the volumes that we expected. So, I think that combined with Iraqi petroleum going up um, and somewhat the, the global economic slowdown has, has hit the demand side. So it's a little bit of a triple storm. But again, I would say that the shale oil revolution is by, by far the dominant uh, factor. Now, why didn't people believe that it was real? Or did that well, <laughs> Well, the, the, it's like Yoda said to Luke Skywalker, always with you it cannot be done. Um, there, It seems throughout the history, certainly of the oil industry, there, there have been people who kind of denied that progress would uh, go forward, that new technologies would work and so forth. Uh, I love the fact that when Spindletop came on in 1901 and was the first real gusher in, in the U.S., uh, there were people saying, "No, this will, you know, give it a few days and it'll it'll come down, and uh, uh, the oil can't possibly have good quality and so forth." But uh, people uh, had gone from sort of saying that you know shale gas would never really work, uh, not going to be successful, and when the Bakken started producing in, in large amounts, they said, "Well, the Bakken is unique because of the dolomite layer that allows you to collect oil." And, and it won't be reproduced anywhere else. And uh, again, it's sort of the usual naysayers uh, with other the the bulk of the observers sort of standing back saying, wow, this is new. We just don't know what's going to happen yet. Let's wait and see. What is your sense of the truth of the, the narrative that 
the shale plays are much more short term than other kinds of oil plays. That you know the the production curve is very different and much shorter than a typical well. That you know that's that's a funny story. We heard that about shale gas, um, and when you do the numbers, uh, you find that um, it, it although each well generally declines at very high rates. Um, the industry has offset that by a combination of just better production methods, getting getting more from each well to begin with, uh, but also just drilling more wells. So uh, you had uh, one prominent skeptic who said that uh, the industry lost something like 22 BCF a day of capacity every year, uh, and lower drilling would cause production to, to just collapse. Uh, and instead, what we're seeing is that even though drilling natural gas directed rigs active, uh, as the the data is called, it dropped by about 80% after prices came down in 2008-2009. Drilling goes down 80%, and shale production just keeps going up in a linear fashion. So essentially, the industry was able to deal with that. And I, I think... I think there are people who seize on the the decline rate phenomenon as uh, sort of a black box. It's a technical issue that most people don't understand, and the data is not readily available. So when someone says, aha, you know, trust me, this is going to kill off the industry, most people just don't don't have a, a sense of how to judge those statements. Um, the shale deposits that are out there are so large that um, even though any given well will decline quickly, you can drill for years and decades to offset it. So that that was always, uh, I think, a uh, misinterpretation of the data and, and the industry performance. I think one thing that, that, that drives that misinterpretation uh, that in part causes people to not even want to understand the specific details uh, or to have the wrong guess about the whole situation is the idea that drove the whole peak oil uh, scare and, and the whole Malthusian approach for a long time, which is just the, this premise that capitalism is blind and unsustainable in the long run. That is that <laughs> and if you take the oil industry, that they are just like blindly uh, producing and the consumers are blindly consuming and we're committing ourselves to a path that will necessarily be destructive. Uh, so it's, it's as if I go, you know, I, well, I barely drive, but my Uber driver, <laughs> you know, he goes to the gas station and he's allegedly being short-sighted because he's not quote, thinking about the future. But actually, he's thinking about the future. He's thinking about the relevant future to him, which is, let's say, the 10 years or so that will be the life of his car. And when he uses uh, oil-based fuel, he's not saying uh, humanity should use this for the next jillion years. What he's saying is this is the most efficient way to produce energy for my needs for this foreseeable future. And that's the same thing when the oil industry is making projections and when financiers make projections. And what the the catastrophists don't realize is that that there's a lot of information behind those projections, and that if it were actually a disaster, you would start to see it uh, in the prices. So unfortunately, I think, I think what happens with historical developments is they rarely change people's basic premises unless those issues are made very explicit. So the same people who were adamant about peak oil 
it doesn't seem like they've rejected Malthusianism. I don't know if that's your observation. Uh, that's very true. And and what I would suggest um, as a great um, counterpoint, counterpoint, uh, read The End of Growth by Richard Heinberg and The End of Doom by Ronald Bailey. Um, and Richard Heinberg is a peak oil guy, and he's he's sort of moved on to the end of economic growth. And if you read it, you get the clear sense that he wants that. He doesn't like growth. He doesn't like the consumer society. And he's kind of, uh, you know, reverse engineering to get that. But he's he's really doing what, what the peak oil people did uh, a decade ago, which is to say, oh, look, you know, there's a problem right now. It must reflect permanent uh, changes uh, and and or, you know, these calculations I've done, which, you know, are scientific. Um, and instead, you know, in, in his case, he's looking at the recession in 2008 and, and insistent that, you know, that's 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 the end of capitalism, as it were. Um, and, and I think that's very true. And we used to, you know, when I was at MIT and I did, did some computer modeling and worked on some of the, you know, examined some of the other models, you come to realize that uh you know the models are very nice and can tell you a lot of things but they're they tend to be limited and some of them uh are simply uh wrong um you know the the limits to growth uh model uh which was you know very nice and very simple uh but it was missing some variables so it it assumed for example uh it just took growth rates and extrapolated them forever without thinking that, well, higher prices would mean less demand for iron ore, for example, or substitution, and, and, and you know, just no feedback effects whatsoever. And Malthusians and Neo-Malthusians tend to, tend to still go that way. And you still get people saying, well, look, every time we come up with a new medicine, uh, you know, diseases evolve. And when you point out to them that lifespans are lengthening, you know, it's like we're we're not running faster to stay in place. We're running faster, and we're gaining. We are making progress. Um, you know, picking picking a, a bad weather year as as a, a sign of the new normal is uh, always foolish. And yet, people just repeat this again and again and again. I just had a thought about computer models that I'm just going to say even if it's not relevant so that I don't forget it because I can't write it down during the show. Uh, but I think it is, I think it's relevant to this, just having just a bit of you know, background in computer science and modeling myself uh, in my past life. I was just thinking that, but even, you know, it's not like, even if you've never used, uh, if, even if you never coded, if, if one just thinks about in a business, say, if you're trying to model the processes of it, or you're trying to, you know, explain systematically how something works, it's really hard. And, and what you find is that to do that, the precondition of doing that, at least in my experience, is that you already have a demonstrated ability to predict the system, to basically understand it. Because otherwise, how are you going to, to code it in a way that is, is accurate? Where are you getting your idea of the inputs? And it's, it's harder to do in a computer because you have to make sure that um, all of these variables that you might, you, you know, you might just sort of, uh, your subconscious might not handle in your thinking and you might sort of put them aside as not huge. Uh, you know, you have to decide what to do with those. And you're basically creating this closed system 
Uh, so you, it's really hard to be right about that kind of thing and figure out the feedbacks and whatnot. So this idea that people have that, oh, well, if it's in a computer, then it must be accurate. <laughs> Like that, that to me is such a high achievement. If you, it's true that if, if you can really nail it down, the computer allows you to do lots of stuff because it can crunch numbers so quickly. Uh, but I don't have, yeah, to me, it just doesn't strike me as somebody who can't really predict the system writes a bunch of code. I don't then become confident in the predictions of the code because it's just a formalization of the person's bad understanding. You know, you've really hit the nail on the head. Um, we used to say garbage in, garbage out about computers. And this is very true of models. And a number of people have noted over the years that, that the energy models were usually written and designed by people who were good at coding but didn't know resources. Um, and uh, I, I, I think you tend to see that, and especially, you know, people then say, okay, what are the inputs? And you think in hard science, nobody comes in and says, well, the speed of light is somewhere between here and here, or the gravitational constant, you know, varies according to, you know, the year or the day or the, the place. Um, but if you say, well, what is the response of oil demand to price changes, you'll get 20, 30 different answers. Um, and if you are biased and Technically, all of us, I mean, I, I would argue we're all biased. Uh, it's just, you know, so, some people are better at recognizing it than others. But if you're biased, you can choose uh, <clears throat> the parameters from the ranges in such a way that you get specific results. Um, and you kind of see, you know, what what I had argued looking at the oil models 20 years ago was um, you tend to see uh, instead of, uh, what the rational expectations theory says, which is that the average forecast will be right, even if they're all wrong, you tended to find that, for instance, everybody predicted prices that were too high, and everybody got non-OPEC supply too low. So there was, there was some kind of bias uh, in the outputs, which suggested that uh, consciously or subconsciously the modelers were uh, choosing their inputs in such a way that they were getting bad results. Um, in particular, I noted that a lot of the models seem to say, oh, here's the depletion effect, which will drive up cost or drive down supply. And none of them ever talked about uh, the, the impact of technological improvements on supply, which is a you know, major offset. Um, and I, I believe um, that that was why so many people uh, back in the early 80s, for example, were convinced that only the, the Persian Gulf could increase production, uh, which turned out to be way wrong. So more with these predictions, I've talked about the issue that people have these Malthusian premises that uh, affect how they how they think about things, how they predict how they code. Uh, one dynamic, another predictive dynamic that interests slash upsets me is institutions that, depending on the trend, will make the fashionable prediction, often in extreme form, whether it's up or down. So Goldman Sachs seems to be a villain here. Uh, because if I remember correctly, several years ago, they predicted at least $200, might have been 400 but at least $200 oil. And now they make a lot of headlines by predicting $20. So what, what's going on 
with that, and how can they do that with a straight? I don't know if it's a face, <laughs> a straight whatever. Yeah, um, this is this is a problem. Uh, I'm, there are some people, like I would say, Citicorp, Goldman Sachs, and a few others that that make a serious effort to predict prices. There are a lot of people out there who just cannot toss out numbers. Um, there's a tendency to go with the flow. That is, if prices are falling, to say, oh, oh they'll speak. keep falling or going up. And and you know, the two hundred dollars came when prices had been been shooting up. Uh, in 2008, um, and you know, I, w- I was sort of astonished at the time. Uh, I published a couple things about six weeks before the peak about you know what to do, where to invest if oil when oil prices go down, and people just you know were convinced. Oh, there were like 250 responses online saying, "What an idiot you are!" And the fact that the price has gone up. How many apology letters have you gotten? <laughs> Oh, uh, you naive fool. Uh, I don't think, I'm trying to think, I don't think I've ever had anybody say, you know, you were right about X. Um, I, I actually won a bet with Matt Simmons, uh, which uh, he at the point at the time said, well, I think the data will be revised in my favor, and so you haven't really won. And, and then he passed away not too much longer after that. So, uh, but no, I have, I have rarely, I don't think I've ever seen anyone, uh, suggest that, uh, Oh gee, you were right. I was wrong. Um, and, and it is, it is interesting. Uh, it it kind of makes me a little crazy because it seems like there are people who are always bears and there are people who are always bulls. Now when Goldman Sachs says $20, um, or $200, the fact is the price in the short term could do almost anything. Um, if the price is going up towards $150 to say $200 is, is I, I think you could say a bit conservative. You're sort of saying, well, here's the trend and we don't see the change. We don't see what will change it. And that's always the trick predicting the change. Um, similarly, when it's going down, it's kind of what, hard sorry, to what say. Do you mean predicting the change. Um, you know, when, when is the price going to peak and start down? Okay, um, so re- like reversing it. Okay. Right, we'll reverse or hit a hit a bottom, pick the bottom or the top of the market. Um, and you know, hundred years ago, somebody asked J.P. Morgan how he got rich, and he said, "I always sold too soon." And what he meant was, you know, well, he didn't wait for the peak and then you know miss it and sell and lose money on the downside. Um, hmm. And that that's still a thing now. And and you know when I wrote my piece back in 2008, I said I can't predict what the price, what the peak will be, or when it will come. But I think prices are just too high, and they will come down, um, which I had said for some years before that too. So, um, so the thing is, when you look right now at the physical market. Storage tanks are apparently very full. The, the Inventories in the OECD countries, which is the only data we really have, are, are about 300 million barrels above the previous record levels. Uh, the contango, that is the, the current price versus the future price, suggests that you know you wouldn't buy a barrel now unless you get a good discount and you can sell it later for a higher price because you need to cover your storage costs. Um, so this is, this is an unusual, this is a really disequilibrium market. Uh, I don't know that we'll hit 20. I 
think we won't, but it's not impossible. Then the question of, oh, will we hit 70 by the end of the year or 60, as a number of people have said, that's possible. But they're making, the, I think, fairly aggressive assumptions about uh, shale oil production declines uh, and, and non-OPEC production declines, which uh, we've seen from time to time. And I, I think they're just too aggressive. So I don't think we'll see a big uh, increase in prices this year or next year unless you get some kind of uh, political problems with supply, such as in, in Venezuela, which is kind of just a wonderful example of, of what happens when you don't believe in market economics. Yeah, more fundamentally uh, freedom or that human beings have value. Yeah. But uh, just to continue a little bit on the topic of these these fashionable predictions. So mm-hmm. again, to pick on Goldman Sachs, it, it's true that with both of the predictions, they're not saying something that's insane relative to the trend at the time. But part of what interests me is a mindset. And, and I, uh, I recommend that people listen to well, all the power hours with you, but, but the last one in particular, because you, you discussed this a bit. But the mindset of thinking that whatever is going on right now is the enduring thing. And what strikes me about Goldman is it's not like everyone died over eight generations between these predictions. These are, you know, six, seven years apart. Yeah. And there doesn't seem to be the self-awareness that, oh, at the time, it seemed like really high prices were the new normal. And now it seems like really low prices are the new normal. But perhaps we don't understand the dynamics of this system. That's why we thought that the new normal, uh, that something was the new normal, and then it became, you know, the past barely uh, barely remembered. Uh, yeah, I think one thing that that really kind of proves that case is in 2004 we had the the highest growth uh, in absolute terms in oil demand in in history, uh, and a, a big chunk of that was in China, um, and everybody acted like that was completely new and would never change. And Chinese demand had been growing by 8 to 10% a year for a long time. Uh, you had an unusual year in 2004 where uh, the, the train system couldn't get up. Uh, railroads could not keep up with coal demand, and so people were burning oil uh, in, in diesel generators and other things to, to uh, supply enough uh, electric power. And, and that was a, a one-off thing, and yet you started hearing people say, aha, this is the new paradigm. Chinese oil demand will soar forever, prices totally meaningless, and so forth. Um, and that's that's the kind of thing that just uh, you know makes long-term market observers a little crazy um, because – you know, you just see it over and over again. Uh, it's much more in agricultural commodities where the weather affects somehow people act like, you know, there's never been a drought before. This <laughs> and, and and But now that there is one, it will never stop. Um, in oil, you know, if you look at the last decade, you had so many political problems uh, in Venezuela, Iraq, Libya, uh, Iran, 
that that affected oil supply, and yet people just acted like that was totally irrelevant. That it was all about resource scarcity and and uncontrollable demand. Um, and the amazing thing is, this is this is what happened in the seventies too. Uh, you know, the CIA uh, in seventy nine, after the Iranian Revolution sent prices up, they 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 wrote a big report on the oil market, and they said, well, we can see prices are higher now, and this this is reflective of resource scarcity. <laughs> and you know, like, gee, you don't think the six million barrel a day uh, shut in in Iran for several months had anything to do with it? Apparently, they didn't. So, or I shouldn't say this; it was published by the CIA. I have been told. It was really reflective of one analyst's views, but uh, those views were popular in the White House, so the publication uh, was permitted. I don't know how true that is. Um, was, it does send a little Was involved with that? Um, I, I, would, I, I can't tell you that he was directly involved with that. He was certainly promoting that view. And I would I would guess that uh, he had a finger in the publication. Um, he had been a director of the CIA earlier, of course, um, and and I suspect that he, uh, you know, knew the analyst and encouraged him or her. Uh, but I, I have to admit, I've never had anybody sort of, you know, show me a memo or anything. But it, it certainly uh, it matched right in with the things that he believed. In you know, given that he was a PhD economist, it's it's a little <laughs> embarrassing, I think. Well, he's he. Yeah, they, well, they never get anything wrong, but he, uh, he, gosh, you know, I, I, I read uh, quite a bit of history of the last several decades of energy policy and discussion and environmental policy and discussion, and Schlesinger, just any time anything bad happens that's mm-hmm. endorsed particularly by any kind of Republican or someone who's close to being a Republican, mm-hmm. like, he's involved in everything. It's like, it's like where's Waldo? <laughs> you can just find him. In, in every picture, like where's James Schlesinger? Uh, so and that's just a personal thing that I've noticed uh, yeah. of this. So then, I mean, well, let me ask this so we get this on the record. Early last year, I want to know your predictions because I, I uh, speak quite a bit, and, and at a couple at a couple of events, I heard people make different predictions for the end of the year. Now there seems to be more of a consensus that you know the "Quote unquote low prices will continue for a while, but then there was a you know real ambiguity. A lot of people were saying, well, by the end of the year, it'll be seventy or eighty. What what was your sense early last year of what it would uh, be? No, I I've, was promoting the idea of fifty to sixty dollars when the price you know before the price went well under that, and I thought we would see the market stabilize somewhere around fifty dollars, you know, plus or minus. Uh, it has been weaker than I expected, but if you go back to early 2014, um, I did submit a forecast to the DOE, the, a long-term forecast with a price about $50 rising over 20 years to 60, I think, uh, or maybe going. I don't remember now, but I, I was, I was not quite half of all the other predictions, and, and the response was, "Are you drunk?" Um, and, you know, people think you're taking drugs or something. Um, and that's, you know, especially for a long-term forecast, people should, should have a better sense. Well, it, it, it's, it's just 
disheartening to think that there are so many people who can see a price be high for five years and argue it can never go down, that it's just it, it's completely beyond the realm of, of possibility or conceivability, as, as a few people in the oil industry, oil and gas industry did. And um, to try, you know, it's, it's as if they have no sense of history or economics, which is, as I say, it's, it's very disheartening. Well, uh, let me look. I'm looking at people might have heard me typing, which I've ca- caught flack for <laughs> for typing during Power Hour in the past, which has justified that flack. But this flack <laughs> would not be justified because I'm trying to find it. Uh, where is an easy? I, I just tried to search. Jan- Do you remember what it was? January first, uh, 2014. What no, the if you, if, price if, was? If you go, uh, at that time, it was it was still about a hundred dollars. If you go to the uh, eia.doe.gov and you download the annual energy outlook from 2014, they have a section with comparisons of forecasts, and you can see that. Oh, did you submit um, one of them? Yes. Oh, I see. And I, I still show people the graph sometimes. Uh, I don't I don't so often talk about my $30 prediction 10 years ago, but... Uh, I do in my book. I thirty dollars. Yeah. Um, uh, it's what was that prediction? The thirty dollars. Yeah. Uh, back when the price hit fifty, I was saying, you know, by next year we'll probably be back to thirty dollars. Um, and you know, I throughout I said this: the high prices are transient. They're due to transient factors like the war in Iraq and and the strike in Venezuela and so forth. Um, the Arab Spring later, um, but over time I went from saying the price will go to back down to thirty to saying that the price will, um, you know, go to fifty, um, which may reflect my own, uh, you know, psychological uh, subconscious acceptance of the notion that prices should be higher. Um, I'm not convinced that we can have thirty dollar prices for the next twenty years. Uh, but uh, $50 will be too high depending on what happens in the shale oil fields. If it turns out that people can add a lot of production at 50 which is possible, then uh, $50 is going to be a ceiling. So what's your forecast for the U.S. industry? Because anyone who's connected to that industry knows that mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of suffering going on because of unexpectedly far, far lower prices. If you think about just how that industry works, you know, if, you, if you go from a you know $100 for your product to $30 for your product and your costs are the same, uh, that's, that's very yeah. dramatic. So what's, what's happening there and what can we expect uh, to happen? Well, uh, the first thing you expect to happen is that a lot of the cyclically high costs will go down. That is... Uh, you know where people were poaching uh, petroleum engineers and geologists and offering them higher and higher bonuses, where uh, rig leases were sort of two or three times what they were ten years ago. Uh, you know the daily price you paid to rent a rig. Um, a lot of that will come down. Uh, it will mean less money in the pockets of workers and service companies and so forth. Uh, many of them will survive. The people who borrowed large amounts of money convinced that prices wouldn't come down and therefore their revenue stream would not be affected. 
those, especially the small companies, uh, a bunch of those will go under. Uh, this is what you really see in the shale oil fields, uh, where during the height of the boom, people were just scrambling to buy leases. What kind of uh, actual money was being, you know, that they would be making in the long run? Um, the larger companies, uh, you know, the Evans, the Conoco Phillips, and so forth. Those companies will survive. They will see their costs go down some. I think what you'll see is uh, what we call high grading, where that is where uh, they have areas that uh, are less productive. The geology is not as attractive, uh, but would have been produced at $100 a barrel anyway. Uh, they'll pull back from those areas and send their capital and, and personnel into places like the Permian, for example. Uh, or the stack and scoop in the Oklahoma, which is is uh, looks like it may turn out to be profitable at thirty forty dollars a barrel. Although the um, uh, the you know we we still don't have any definitive answers on that as of yet. But um, so what you'll see is you'll have a, a smaller industry, um, mostly the tail of small companies. Uh, the long tail will will be chopped off. Um, and the the mid-size and larger companies will survive and 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 more or less prosper in the long run. I think so. The industry will will see, I think, some shrinkage this year and maybe next year, uh, and then it will tend to come back. Um, uh, but uh, people are you know unless something happens, say in the Middle East, people are not going to see the kind of boom that we had the last few years. What about in gas, let's say best case scenario, we uh, liberated LNG exports. You could actually sell your product overseas. You could actually build terminals uh, quickly. What would be the potential there? Because it seems like you have a lot of markets around the world that have very expensive gas where LNG or some other method of uh, mm -hmm. compressing or transporting gas would be economic. Yeah, the thing, the thing is... Um, LNG is is moderately expensive. Um, the the price uh, has been high enough with because it's tied to oil prices in international trade since the 70s, um, which was a mistake to begin with. But um, people were able to make very good profits even with expensive projects, uh, as some of the Australian ones are. Um, and the U.S. industry looks out and says, wow, you know, at $13, we can make a lot of money. However, you know, the $13 is sort of assuming $100 oil. Um, and what you're seeing now is people, you know, pushing the LNG prices down below 10 And, and I, I saw uh, six and a half, uh, I think, was a contract recently signed in India uh, for imports. So uh, the thing is, when you talk about places like Abu Dhabi uh, or Qatar, the production cost is almost nothing. Uh, the liquefaction cost is a bit higher than in the U.S. Um, because, you know, you're building stuff in an area without a big industrial infrastructure. On the other hand, your labor costs are lower. Um, so what happens is if, if U.S. natural gas were $5 in MCF, they they wouldn't be exporting to Europe or Asia if the price there is going to be $7. If the U.S. price stays at $2, as it is now more or less, 
um, there's more of a chance. Uh, what will probably happen is not so much huge exports from the U.S., but some exports, which will, because they'll be more competitive, uh, will tend to push prices down for a lot of the other producers. And if you, you know, the the amount of uh, natural gas that we use in the U.S. is just, it's enormous compared to the LNG trade. Um, so even if you had uh, a significant increase in, in LNG exports, uh, I don't think it would affect the U.S. price at all. It, but because... As the marginal supply, which is you know produced by competitive companies as opposed to you know uh, semi-government entities or, or uh, places where the market is regulated and they want to keep the price high, uh, then the U.S. Uh, industry could really uh, outpunch its weight, as it were. I had another thought on forecasting. If we just you mentioned different variables that go into forecasting, and uh, particularly on on the original Power Hour we did, you, you talked about some of the mechanics of how to do forecasting, mm-hmm. and and what's difficult about it. But I just want to ask people listening to think about uh, what we sort of what we've heard and put, connect some dots. So one thing is that the shale revolution has added, I think you said 2.5 billion barrels, uh, m- million barrels a day. Oh, I'm oh, sorry, million barrels a day. Uh, and and how how tell the listeners what the overall number is? Uh, the resource? No, no, no. Sorry, of, of barrels. Oh, a day uh, for for, for the world, world. Uh, it, it's only about ninety four million barrels a day, including natural gas, liquids, and things like that. Okay, well, that might you know to to the uninitiated, that might not seem like that big a deal. Like, you know, yeah. if, if, okay, we're going from, you're going up by two and you're in the 90s. I mean, if somebody is making, you know, 92 grand and it goes up to 94 grand, he doesn't really think, oh, it's not, doesn't feel anything like the Powerball winner felt. It doesn't feel like <laughs> that, big, that big a difference. But, you know, part of what's going on is that these marginal changes, in, and this goes to studying economics, that these marginal changes in, in the supply of oil are, are you know, the amount of oil in the market are huge, both upward and downward. So, you know, you can, the price can go way, way lower if you just add seemingly a small percentage, go way higher if you subtract a seemingly small percentage. So that's just, then if you think about that and then you think about, well, what are the different things that can impact that? There are technological revolutions, but there are also the things that Mike has talked about repeatedly, which have to do with, uh, the policies or, or political situations or military situations of different countries. So you imagine a war and what that does, or you imagine what can happen to demand in a given place. So to, to forecast this thing, you have to forecast so many different aspects. It seems like you people should respect that problem and respect that even knowing any given one of those variables is difficult. But instead, they just seem to think it's they have this mental model of, Oh, there seems to be a lot of oil on the ground now, so that's, then it'll be cheap, I guess. It's just nobody. <laughs> I like the expression "respect the problem." It doesn't seem like anyone is respecting it. They just keep insisting that it's right. this thing that can be radically simplified, and and or it's just like some sort of voodoo that oh well, I'll just listen to what Goldman Goldman Sachs says since they they sound confident. They their their prediction was featured in a prominent publication. You you know you, you see uh, it, it's it's one of the things I, I sort of 
trying to campaign against is the notion of people who rely on uh, aphorisms or, or sayings, you know, like oil is finite or, uh, oh, electric cars are good. And, you know, so we go, well, what does that mean? Um, and, um, you, but, but a lot of the people who are out there and certainly including a lot of politicians, they'll know certain things and they'll just believe them. And, so the the peak oil crowd would say things like, "Well, you know, you have to run faster to stay in place," and and I would hear people say, "Well, you know, we need to replace uh, four million barrels a day of of lost capacity every year to depletion. That's lost to depletion." And I would say, "Yeah, how is that different from twenty years ago?" And they would <laughs> kind of stare at you blankly, you know. <laughs> or, <laughs> Or uh, I several times had geologists, and they would say to me, well, don't you admit that oil is finite? And I would say, yes, and don't you admit that everything is finite? So why why does it matter that oil is finite? And then they say, well, there's not that much. I say, oh, so it doesn't matter if it's finite. It matters how much there is, Except, and there is actually a lot. Um, whenever people say, well, renewable energy is, you know, it's, we can rely on that because it's basically infinite. I say, oh, so we should go back to whale oil. And they just don't understand that. Um, so with, I I have a chapter in my, in my upcoming book on, on supply curves and how, you know, if you, you can, in theory, I can tell you exactly how to model, you know, what variables to put in to predict supply in a given country, except in the end, you have a variable which says political access to reserves. That is, does the government allow you to drill or not? How much do the, are the taxes you know too high or reasonable and so forth? And how do you predict that for 20 years? Well, of course, it's impossible. So um, People, you know, and I, and I love. I, I have a, a slide I, I often show called resource nationalism, uh, which was a you know such a big deal the last ten years. And I, I, it has two pictures. One is Hugo Chavez, the Venezuelan president, with Fidel Castro, and then the second one is an old picture of Pierre Trudeau of Canada with Fidel Castro. And, you know, people forget that resource resource politics are also cyclical. And I, th- I think we're entering a, a, a cycle of more uh, rational uh, policies and greater access. And that is going to have a huge impact because even without the shale oil, if countries like Mexico and Venezuela and Nigeria later on uh, – and 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 so forth are allowing more access and are producing more. Um, that's going to have a big effect on supply. And and you have to remember that it was the Venezuelan apertura in the 90s saw a huge boom in their production levels that most people thought were just totally impossible to achieve. Um, and it put pressure on the market. And that was one of the factors behind the 1998 oil price collapse. All right. Well, in our last couple of minutes, let's talk about some of the projects you have going on. Now, one thing just so that people know is your I mean, your main job is you're a consultant, right? Yes. Yeah. So uh, if people hear you, uh, particularly anyone from industry hears this, and they're interested in inquiring about your brilliant forecasting, uh, <laughs> this is not an endorsement, by the way. If yes. Make uh, money or lose money, it's yours. <laughs> 
on the right. side. <laughs> but uh, how do they contact you? Um, I am at my my last name Lynch at energyseer.com e-n-e-r-g-y-s-e-e-r.com so it's like energyprofit.com and that's that's by far the the best way to find me okay so lynch at energyseer.com all right great well uh and by the way i do not get a commission on that anybody so just, just <laughs> well we'll see i'll, I'll buy a, i'll buy a dinner sometime <laughs> Yeah, no, even, even that's, you know, dangerous. Uh, <laughs> um, just uh, No, but seriously, I, I, I mentioned that in part because, well, because I'm a fan, but also because I, I have been in environments where I, sometimes I give talks and then sometimes I'll accidentally go to the talk at the wrong time, so I'll have to watch someone talk about oil prices. And sometimes they say crazy stuff, and I think, hey, Lynch should be here. They should invite him <laughs> no, instead. So anyway, the, uh, so something I can endorse, even though I have not been given my preview copy, but I'll, I'll definitely buy that one. I encourage you guys to buy that one, is uh, the book. So now this book, uh, I think I told people last time, this book was mm. right around the corner in February 2011 when we first spoke <laughs> on, on the, uh, the phone. So uh, how's the book going now? Um, it's it's going well. The manuscript is in the publisher's hands. I've been uh, converting the the figures into the software they need, and I maybe I'll finish that today. I've just got a few left, but uh, it's it's extremely dense in terms of uh, data and and citations. So that's that's been keeping me busy. Um, yeah. So if you know, I'm a lot better at forecasting the price of oil than I am at forecasting my ability to complete projects. Um, uh, which is <laughs> so it's sort of like the difference between you know Ted Williams at 400 and uh, you know Sparky Gonzalez at a 220 batting average. Um, even on my best day forecasting uh, prices, uh, I'm I'm far from perfect as uh, most people are. And t- the title of the book, or at least the working title? Oh, uh, the working title is The Peak Oil Scare and the Coming Oil Flood. It's it's a, it's listed. Uh, you can pre-order it on Amazon now, and hopefully it will be in stores uh, in three or four months. And uh, I'm hoping that uh, Tom Cruise will play me, but I suspect it will be uh, somebody more like John Goodman. John, John Goodman is pretty svelte these days. Really? Oh wow! Oh, yeah. You know, I it, I, I always it, it, there's nothing worse than having an old friend announce that he's now weighs less than you, and that that always makes me a little um, disgruntled. But uh, I'm good for him. Yeah, congratulations, John Goodman, loyal listener to Power Hour, and <laughs> and uh, finally, uh, people, I'd recommend checking out a lot of these. But you you have a Forbes column. Uh, so you yes. can just search Michael Lynch on, on Forbes. But tell us a little bit about the latest one. Uh, well, the latest one is is uh, on the question of low gasoline prices and the impact on electric vehicles. Um, and I've long been a skeptic about, uh, in in this case, the technology behind electric vehicles because I feel that uh, it has not reach the point of being uh, ready for the mass market. Um, it's still a niche vehicle requiring heavy subsidies to offset the fact that the, the, the battery qual- quality is just not just not uh, good enough to sell millions and millions of cars. 
Um, and I think that you're starting to see weakness in the U.S. market because of low gasoline prices. And people sort of said the automobile industry, you know, faced collapse in 2008 because they foolishly produced big vehicles um, as if it was a question of big or small. But it was really a question of responding to price and consumer demand. And when prices were high, people wanted smaller vehicles. Now that prices are low, that's going to change again. And so I think I think you're going to. You're going to see a battle royale over cafe standards and electric vehicle subsidies in the next few years. All right, and you have, you have a bunch of articles about electric vehicle vehicles, among other interesting topics. So I'd, I'd encourage people to check those out. All right, as we wrap up, any final thoughts for our listeners on oil prices or anything else? Uh, keep an open mind, uh, a skeptical mind, try not to have too cynical a mind, but, uh, it, it, you know, more knowledge is always better than less. I think as long as it's good knowledge, more knowledge is always better than less as long as it's good knowledge. All right, every listener. So just make sure you have good knowledge. That's right, me. <laughs> Trust me. That's, that's, that's pretty easy. Yeah. Just keep listening to to power i'm just going to name it the source of good energy the show where you get good energy knowledge right it it, you you can do like smart foods popcorn you know you can say it's good energy knowledge and if it's if it's a a trademark nobody can complain that about the judgment well i actually do like you know they have this the the, the, they make up these terms like superfood like you know (laughs) superfood is anything that's foreign to American culture as a superfood. Uh, right. But, yeah, I think it's good. Like, you know, I think of, of liquid hydrocarbon as, you know, super fuel, and I think of uh, intermittent uh, as <laughs> junk fuel. Intermittent, intermittent expensive stuff is, is it, yeah, it's kind of like uh, – the people who you know want to buy the uh, the um, coffee beans that were pooped out by a weasel or something, you know, it's like, yeah, that's great. Uh, maybe you shouldn't really be in charge of your own finances, though, or mine, uh, <laughs> at least. All right, so we got uh, just uh, as a reminder for everyone, you want to contact Mike Lynch at energyseer.org. You can read his column at Forbes and make sure to check out on Amazon the peak oil wait the peak oil scare and the coming oil flood. If you type right. that in, you'll, you'll definitely get it. There's no yeah. book with close to that title, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, all right, Mike, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for being on the program. No, I enjoy it. Thank you very much, Alex. Thanks again to Mike Lynch for being on the show. All right, we're switching topics. Guess what exists now? It is America's energy opportunity. It is the campaign that should change all of the campaigns. It is not a partisan campaign. It is a campaign to unleash the power of energy to improve human life. And in particular, the power of America to become the world's energy superpower. Yes, I realize how many times I just said power, but it is justified. So go to americasenergyopportunity.com, americasenergyopportunity.com, no apostrophe because it's a web address and that would be weird and I don't think it works. So no apostrophe, americasenergyopportunity.com, you'll see we've got some really, I think a really uh, really solid core message 
we've got an, uh, a petition slash ultimatum for our politicians. So number one thing I'm going to ask of you is all I'm going to focus on, not even going to say my usual line. Oh, I will. If you have any questions, comments, love mail or hate mail, email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. But forget about that. Go to americasenergyopportunity.com and share the hell out of it because it's so important that energy be an issue in this election and it's not it gets ignored and even the candidates who are free market who could benefit tremendously by making it an issue using this messaging using these concepts are not but if we get enough signatures they will so that is the job for the week america's energy opportunity.com email me at alex at industrial tell me how many people you have informed uh about it the more people you inform uh the happier i will be and the more likely i'm I am to send you something like a signed book, or if you don't want a signed book, then something else that you really like that's related to energy that I can provide at relatively economic uh, cost. All right, americasenergyopportunity.com. Email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Tell me what you're doing. Tell me what you think. And that is it. All right, next week we will be back with another great guest, another great topic. Until then... I'm Alex Epstein, about to make to go from cold to warm like magic in a space of six feet. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.